0: When I think about, you know, the word feast, of course you think about food. But when you think about a feast, you really think about the event and not just the meal. It's about the preparation of something that's gonna satisfy others that you are welcoming into your home. And not just satisfy them physically, but satisfy them mentally and satisfy them spiritually. God wants all of his children, right, to experience him and to enjoy him. As a leader, you want those that, that you lead to feast because it, it shows that they're currently enjoying the process, enjoying the manifestations of their dreams, their creativity. their are uh, feeling welcome, feeling like home uh, in your office, in your environment that you've created for them as a leader. I really also enjoy feasting with my students. I think that when we provide them with opportunities to feast like, you know, winter harvest dance or the prom, it's like a mask comes off. You just, you get to see the heart of that child. You get to see their spirit, their energy. And it reminds me of how it must look like if people were looking at us feasting as adults. I mean, we are, are able to almost become childlike in our joy. I think it's absolutely essential to create a feast environment uh, both for my students and for my employees, just so that um, they feel welcome, they feel at home, and they're happy. So for the students, it means connecting with them, making sessions fun, making sessions engaging, and it's just as important for us to have a feast environment for our employees so they know that they're in a place where they feel cared about. They're enjoying life, which if they're not enjoying life, then they're not going to be able to give enjoyable tutoring sessions as well. I hope my girls feel like life is a feast because we um, live life to its fullest and we um, encourage imagination and we encourage uh, family time and just showing them that we can have fun and, and um, laugh and everything doesn't have to be so serious, or strict or schedule. Just loving on them. Honestly, I think at the end of the day, we all just want a little love and and really making sure that they feel that. We have an annual Thanksgiving. Um, we probably have anywhere from 15 to 20 different nationalities. And on Thanksgiving Eve, we have a big feast. It's through sort of the interaction with our folks and, and knowing people's families and history. So that's one way we celebrate the, the diversity and the beauty of our company. Doing those things together, the ritual of doing, of feasting with other people uh, creates a, a bond that, uh, that really I, I find no other ways of fellowship can. You know, just, just enjoying a simple meal with your team, you know, a, a, even a, going out for a cup of coffee with somebody, with a stranger. You know, it just creates a connection um, that is, is so deeply embedded in us. It, it, I can't think of better ways to, um, to create a hospitable environment than really to feast with people. Leaders should learn to enjoy the Feast of Life because life is really more about a journey than a destination. You know, leaders can sometimes get too caught up in the goals uh, and not enjoy the how we get to the goals. And I think it's important for them to enjoy the journey. I mean, if we, if we can take a moment to simply just enjoy the things that God has, has given us, fun and feast-worthy, if worthy if that's a term, I think he's glorified when we enjoy those things. If you're not enjoying your life, no one is gonna follow that. If I don't have something that looks as though my life is attractive in every component, why would someone wanna follow me? It's not inviting. As a leader, I don't wanna just wait until the end and wait until I've worked my whole life and, you know, wait until I have everything I thought I wanted. I want to feast now, and I want my kids to see that, you know, feasting can occur every day. I, I don't want anyone to ever think that they need to delay feasting on life. Like, life is to be enjoyed, and God wants us to enjoy the life He's blessed us with. Um, and that includes now. It's imperative that we open up our doors, and we open up our hearts and our doors to, to those who don't have the feast laid out in front of them and say, come join me, come feast with me. Whether it's a client, whether it's a stranger, whether it's a prosecutor, <laughs> uh, open up those doors. Let's all let's all partake in the feast that God has laid out for us. My name is Cindy Grass. My name is Bob Stolte. Michael Brown. Tony Stedman. Jenny Sin. Stan Hickman. It's Olivia Batances. And I'm a leader. And I'm a leader. And I'm a leader. And I'm a leader. I want to start today's talk with one of my all-time favorite stories. It was uh, told by Tony Campola, the well-known sociologist and preacher, about how he found himself jet-lagged in Honolulu uh, and, because of the strange time, was wandering the streets of downtown Honolulu looking for a place to have breakfast at about 3.30 a.m. And he found a little greasy spoon diner, as he described it, and uh, went in, sat at a stool at the counter, uh, asked, as he said it, the fat guy behind the counter for a donut and uh, some coffee. And this guy with the grimy apron and greasy hands grabbed the donut with his hands, put it on the counter in front of Tony, and Tony said a prayer and started to eat. And as he was eating, uh, the door flew open, and in walked um, again, as he said it, Eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. The place was small, so they kind of packed in the the place. And um, Campola uh, found himself now uh, sitting between two prostitutes who were talking uh, very loudly. And he was uh, uncomfortable, and he, he made to leave. But as he did, he heard the woman on his right say to the woman on his left, "'Tomorrow is my birthday.'" to which the woman on his left harshly said, well, Agnes, who cares if it's your birthday? What do you want me to do if it's your birthday? You want me to throw you a party? You want me to sing you a song? You want me to bake you a cake? And Agnes ducked her head and said, no, I wouldn't expect anybody to do that. I've never had a birthday party in my life. And Kempola had a moment of insight, and he waited until all of the, the ladies left and then said to the man behind the counter, whose name he learned was Harry, he said, Harry, I have an idea. How about you and me throw a party for Agnes tomorrow? Does she come in here at this time every night? And he said, yes, she does. And Harry yelled back through the window to his wife who was working back in the kitchen, and he said, come here. He said, this guy's got an idea. We're going to throw a party for Agnes tomorrow night. And his wife smiled and said, that's wonderful. Agnes is a sweet person and no one ever seems to be very kind to her. So sure enough, the next morning, Tony Campola shows up at this little diner about 2.30 in the morning. He's brought an array of decorations. They decorate the place as if they're throwing a birthday party for a maybe 10-year-old girl and uh, Harry has baked a cake and uh, the word has gotten out to, to, to the, 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 the ladies of the night and, and whoever else hangs out on the street during the night that Agnes was going to have a party thrown for her and the place was packed primarily with prostitutes. At 3.30 in the morning, Agnes walked through the door, much to her surprise, and was greeted with a raucous Happy Birthday, Agnes, and cheers and clapping and hooting and howling. And Campola said her knees buckled and her mouth flew open and someone had to actually help her go sit on one of the stools at the counter where then facing outward she started to cry as that group began to sing Happy Birthday, Dear Agnes. Uh, Maybe, according to her, the first time she'd ever heard those words sung in her life. And then she fell into full full out crying when Harry walked out with a beautiful cake covered with candles. And uh, Harry was kind of a gruff guy, didn't know what to do with this woman sitting there crying. And so he said, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. Sure enough, he ended up having to blow out the candles because she couldn't. And then he, he, he handed her a knife and said, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake, cut the cake. If you don't cut the cake, I'm going to have to cut the cake. And she handed the knife back and she said, Harry, I, 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 I'm sorry. I've never had a birthday cake before. And would it be okay if I just took this home so I could keep it for a few days just like this? And He didn't know what to say, so he said, sure. She said, I'm going to take it right now. I just live a couple doors down. I'm just going to take it down and I'm going to put it on my counter and then I'll I'll be right back. She takes the cake. She walks out. There's stunned silence in the room and Tony Campola did the kind of thing that preachers do in moments like that. He said, would it be okay if I said a prayer? (laughs) Sure enough, They bowed their heads and this guy said a prayer and prayed for Agnes and prayed that God would let her know know how much he loved her. And he prayed for all the people in the room and he prayed for God's grace and for positive life change and for redemption. And when he finished, Harry now is a little angry and he said, You're a preacher? You didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of preacher are you? And what kind of church do you belong to? To which Harry... Or Tony Campola in a moment of insight said the words just came to his mind. He said, I'm the kind of preacher and I belong to the kind of church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry said, there aren't any churches like that. If there were churches like that, I'd go to a church like that. That story is one of... Many ways that we could describe the spirit of hospitable leadership. The spirit of hospitable leadership. Remember, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a great wedding feast that a king prepared for his son, and Jesus let it be known that everybody was invited. Matthew's gospel has it like this. Jesus said... The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought everyone they could find, and I love this language, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. I love this picture of the kingdom of God being like a party to which everyone is invited. Now, ultimately, people have to decide whether or not to accept God's invitation, but the heart of God is to invite and welcome people into the feast of his kingdom. And of course, I like to think about leadership in this way. The kingdom of God describes the sphere of God's rule, his leadership domain, if you please. When people accept God's invitation, they come under his leadership. And one of the ways... Not the only way, but one of the ways his leadership domain is described is as a feast, a banquet, a wedding celebration, a party. And this feast is prepared for everyone. Everyone is invited to it, and everyone who is willing to follow his leadership is welcome to be a part of this kingdom of God feast thing forever. Now this feast analogy shouldn't be... A surprising way to illustrate the leadership style of Jesus. This really describes the kind of life that God intended in the very beginning when He put the man and the woman in the garden and He made sure that the garden was full of good food and He invited them to eat. Of course, He gave them the choice to accept the invitation, but they refused. But God's leadership was manifest through creating an environment that felt like a feast. This feast metaphor also portrays the way things will be in the end, when God has ultimately what he set out to have on this planet, and when those who say yes to his invitation join him in launching the new age, the age to come, with a banquet, a party, like no other. Isaiah prophesied about that day like this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods. This is how the age to come begins. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I speak about this in kind of broad terms to begin my talk today because I want to give you the sense of the kind of leader God is, the feast that he's prepared and invites us to. His heart describes the spirit of hospitable leadership. And that's what we've been talking about in recent weeks. I believe that hospitable leaders convey the very heart of God toward those they lead. That hospitable leaders create environments where everyone is welcome and where anyone can fully participate in whatever is being led if they make the decision to say yes to the invitation. The technical definition of... A hospitable leader is this, hospitable leaders create environments of welcome where moral leadership can more effectively influence an ever-expanding diversity of people. But central to this concept of hospitable leadership is this ever-expanding diversity of people because in a hospitable leadership's sphere of influence, everybody feels invited and welcome. I think, by the way, that all of us have the same basic need to be noticed and invited and included as Agnes did in Campola's story. Dr. Brene Brown wrote that a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all women, men, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, And spiritually wired to love to be loved and to belong when those needs are not met we don't function as we were meant to I wonder if we were aware of that need every person in our domain has to be loved to belong and if we were willing to think about that when we're attempting to lead them when you think about this from a leadership perspective, you can understand then that most people would be, what, what, what did, what did uh, Campola said? He said, uh, I belong to a church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning, right? See, I think that most people in whatever uh, context they live and work in would like to be a part of name the organization a church, a business, a classroom, a team that would throw a party for them in some appropriate context. We all have that need to experience welcome and love and belonging, and leaders can create environments of welcome. We've talked about this in terms of the five welcomes of the hospitable leader. We talked about home, the idea that a leader can create in any leadership context something that feels like home, where people's hearts are warm, and that when people's hearts are warm, it's easier to lead them to good and beautiful things. We've talked about strangers, the need that we have to love people who are strange to us and to whom we are strange, and to be open to the possibility that when we entertain a stranger, we may be entertaining a messenger from God that we should see the angel in every stranger. Third, we talked about dreams. A hospitable leader creates an environment that is hospitable to people and their dreams. Fourth, last week, we talked about communication. A hospitable leader doesn't create an environment just where people sit around and sing Kumbaya, but we create an environment where the truth can be spoken, wrapped in grace in a way that promotes one another's growth. And then today, we land the plane in this whole series by talking about feast. It's important though that we remember in all of this business of creating environments where people feel welcomed that that we recall that this is really about leadership. Leaders are trying to create environments where they can exercise influence. We're trying to move people from here to there. We're trying to accomplish mission. And I maintain that if we create hospitable environments, if we can pay attention to the full human experience, if we can warm people's hearts and love them in their strangeness, if we can be hospitable to their dreams and speak truth and love to promote their growth, we can create an environment that feels like a feast and where we help. Help meet people's needs for love and belonging. And that if we do that, that our leadership efforts will be more moral and more effective. And finally, kind of as I finish this summation and introduction... At the same time, remember that Jesus fulfilled his mission in the context of hospitality. He came to do the most serious work in the world, but he did it while eating and drinking and eating and drinking with virtually anyone who was willing to sit at the table with him. Spiritual leaders and de facto mafia members, politicians and fishermen, good people and bad people, religious zealots and prostitutes. Jesus welcomed everyone into his leadership domain. And that's the context in which he influenced them. And he did influence them. Many of them changed their lives, joined his cause. Many of them gave their lives for his cause. This is a serious approach to leadership. It's just an approach to leadership that welcomes people and creates an environment where they want to be led. So with this in mind, then let me dig a little bit more into this whole feast idea. and Let me say it like this. So if, if we're talking about leadership like Jesus did, at least in part, as a feast that we throw and to which everyone is invited, it's important to know that in order for us to throw a feast, we have to be able to live a feast in order for us to throw a feast for us to be the kind of person that creates that kind of environment we need to live a feast and remind me my my definition of who a leader is relates to i would say pretty much everybody in here this isn't just for the ceo this is this is for this is for the teacher in the classroom the coach of the little league team this is for uh, the the captain of the band this is for uh the mom, the dad, and the home who have the most important responsibility, leadership responsibility in this world, all of us have the ability, in whatever area we have uh, uh, leadership influence potential, we have the ability to create an environment and determine what that environment feels like, how it's experienced by people, and so all of us can throw a feast but we have to live a feast first. So remember the leadership theory that I'm sure some of you studied in business school that goes like this. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's not a business school thing, Tony. I say that tongue-in-cheek because I'm really not interested in saying that about mothers as much as it demonstrates the power of a leader to affect the environment in which others live. And there's no leader as important or more powerful than a mom. The the larger point is that any leader has a unique capacity to affect the sphere of his or her leadership according to their state of being. And in this case, if the leader isn't happy... It's difficult for those who they are leading to feel like the leader has prepared an environment of welcome in which the mission can be moved forward. Daniel Goleman, in his seminal work on emotional intelligence, said that emotions are contagious. We transmit and catch moods from each other in what amounts to a subterranean economy of the psyche in which some encounters are toxic, some nourishing. We catch feelings from one another as though they were some kind of social virus. I like that. Emotions are contagious. We catch emotions from each other. And... When I know that, then I understand that if I'm going to create a healthy environment for those I lead, whether it's my children or the people on my team or whatever my leadership context, if I'm going to create a healthy environment for those I lead, I need to be a fundamentally healthy person. This includes being fundamentally happy. And I submit to you that if I am a leader, it is my solemn obligation to be happy. Robert Louis Stevenson had it right when he said, there is no duty we so much underrate as the duty of being happy. Now, let me define happiness like this. I define happiness as the pleasure we feel when we live our lives today and imagine our futures in light of ultimate meaning. So I... I, my idea of happiness is more than some feeling of euphoria that we have according to whatever is happening around us. When I talk about happiness, I'm talking more about a state of being, kind of the, the condition of our life. And I would say that we are happy when we feel pleasure in light, not of just what's happening around us at any moment, but when we feel pleasure in, in a life that's lived in light of ultimate meaning. And I I will probably come back to this a time or two in the next few minutes, but I think that this happiness that I'm suggesting is a state of being. It's answering yes to the question, are you happy? When we say that to somebody, we don't necessarily mean are you happy because, you know, the jets won today. It's not it's more than that. It's it's describing one's essential state of being. Scientific research reveals that happiness, that kind of happiness, is a powerful predictor of achievement. Remember, happiness is a precursor to success, not the result of success. This is where a lot of people get confused about this, and I've taught about this a good bit around here, so I'll just mention it enough to kind of make sure we're all on the same page. Happiness isn't about Feeling good that something happened to you, uh, let me say like this. When something good happens to you, the happiness that one feels is typically short-lived. I mean, just study about people who won the lottery and how long that affect their basic state of being. The answer is not long. Uh, happiness isn't about something some success having happened, happiness should be understood more as creating the conditions for success to happen. Happiness creates the conditions for success. A compilation of nearly every study about happiness ever conducted, over 200 studies involving 275,000 people worldwide, disclosed mind-boggling results. I'll just share a little bit of it with you. This report says that happiness leads to success in nearly every domain, including work, health, friendship, sociability, creativity, and energy. Study after study divulges that happy people are healthier and live longer, more satisfying lives. Happiness creates an environment in which success is more likely to happen at every level of our lives. As in most anything else, then, the happiness stakes are dramatically higher for a leader because leaders have the power to create conditions for others. A dad in the home, the boss at work, the coach of the team, it's not just now feeling like you need to be a fundamentally happy person so you can live a more successful life. If you're a leader now, your state of being is about more than you. It's about the conditions in which everybody else has to live because you're creating the environment that feels like a, well, a feast or something else. For the people that you're leading hospitable leaders must be happy people and in our happiness we must and have the privilege to create environments that are conducive to inspiring not just our own happiness but happiness in those people we lead now with this in mind let me close this talk and this series by suggesting two ways to live a feast now we could write a book about how to live a feast But um, let me just suggest two kind of top-of-mind things that I think might be helpful and practical for us today, okay? I'm talking fast, trying to get through the material, trying to do it in a way that doesn't bore you out of your mind, and I just want to check on you for a minute. Is everybody okay? Doing all right? These folks out over here, they didn't answer. They don't know. Everybody okay over here? All right. Here are two ways that I suggest that we live a feast. The first is very simple. Enjoy life. This is especially difficult for leadership types. But the reality is, in our very stressful world, it's tough for moms and dads, and it's tough for you know, the captain of the band, and it's, it's, it's but we, we have, I believe, a responsibility to enjoy life. Remember that the hospitable leader, Jesus, said of himself that he came enjoying life. Matthew's gospel has Jesus saying of himself, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Phillips translation has it like this simply, the son of man came enjoying life. Now again, let's just ask the fundamental question here, who said this about Jesus? Jesus said that about Jesus. Jesus said, now to some people who are new to this kind of teaching are saying, Jesus enjoyed life. And the answer is, When you study the life of Jesus, I don't know why all the holy people miss this, but Jesus enjoyed being God in flesh. He enjoyed the experience of being a human being. Now, his mission wasn't to enjoy life. When he talked about his mission, he talked in very serious terms, of course. He came to seek and save the lost, he said. He came to give his life as a ransom for many that was his mission statement if you please but the context in which he fulfilled his mission was one from the wedding of cana where he turned water into wine to keep the party going longer through his entire ministry he is constantly at dinner with friends welcoming people who weren't typically welcomed, and according to what he said of himself, enjoying life. He was the holiest man who ever lived and the most effective leader who ever led, and he enjoyed life. I have no doubt that this is part of why everyone and anyone felt invited and welcomed to his kingdom and many willingly followed his leadership. I believe that we need to enjoy the full feast of life in the context of a life of purpose. We need to learn to feast. I'm talking about more than enjoying a good dinner. I am talking about enjoying all the good and beautiful things that God so richly provides. There's this marvelous, uh, this marvelous commandment in the law, in the law of the Old Testament where God commanded his people to feast in his presence, not separated from his presence, but to feast in his presence. Here's here's a portion of a passage from Deuteronomy, the law, where God says to his people, he tells them to take a certain amount of money. It appears to be a tithe on top of their regular tithe. He tells them to take a certain part of their money, 10% of their income actually, and to use the income to provide for a meal that was to be enjoyed in God's presence. He said, use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Now that's pretty profound, isn't it? He says, I want you to take this money. I want you to buy whatever you want in order to have a feast. And I want you to eat it. And I want you to eat it in my presence. God's basically saying, I want to be invited to the party that you guys are throwing To which I say that we must all learn to invest in and be intentional about enjoying life in the presence of our Lord. I don't mean enjoying life and... You know, because you 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 enjoy uh, being uh, with your family or friends one night, when you know you should be home finishing some report, and you 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 you're trying to separate you know your enjoyment of life from the work that you know you need to do, and there's guilt and all this kind of stuff. God says, I I I don't want you to separate your enjoyment of life from who I am and who I am to you and what we're doing together. I want you to enjoy life in my presence. So. I say, enjoy beautiful art in the presence of the Lord. Dance to an inspiring song in the presence of the Lord. Eat a bountiful meal in the presence of the Lord. Watch a great Broadway show in the presence of the Lord. Play golf, if that's your thing, in the presence of the Lord. Enjoy nature in the presence of the Lord. Enjoy the intimacies of marriage in the presence of the Lord. Enjoy life in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. See, I am so, thank you. I am so serious about my work and so intent on being a good leader that I know I simply must get better at enjoying life. If I'm going to lead like Jesus, then I'm going to have to learn how to have more fun. Some of your minds are blown. You're saying, church, fun, leadership. Mission, fun, we need to change our idea about what God's looking for from us. I'm not talking about immoderate. Lifestyles. I'm not talking about reckless pleasures. I'm not talking about sinning and thinking it's okay. I'm talking about enjoying fully the feast of life, the good and beautiful things that God offers to us to find pleasure in. He finds pleasure in our pleasure. So here's the second thing that I offer as how to enjoy. The feast of life. It's to practice the discipline of hope. So the most important dimension of our happiness isn't found, I think, in the enjoyment of things in in the moment, though, as I've just stated, I think that's incredibly important. But I think fundamentally, the undercurrent and more important thing is that a person who is hopeful is happy and you find this in scripture and you find this when you study the subject of hope I love what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans when he said since we have been made right with God by our faith we have peace with God this happened through our Lord Jesus Christ who through our faith has brought us into that blessing of God's grace That we now enjoy. I mean, everything about that's beautiful. Through faith, we've come into a relationship with God because of what Jesus did. And now we have a life that we can now enjoy. And then he says, and we are happy because of the hope we have of sharing God's glory. We also have joy, this state of being, call it happiness, call it joy, very closely associated in the way that I talk about happiness. We're happy because of the hope we have of sharing God's glory. We also have joy with our troubles because we know that these troubles produce patience and patience produces character and character brings us back again to hope and this hope will never disappoint us without having time to spend to really exegete that passage, I would simply say, listen to the simplicity of Paul's words. We are happy because of the hope we have to share in God's glory. Now, God's glory technically has to do with who God is and what he does. It's his self-manifestation. So Paul's essentially saying we are happy because of our hope to share in who God is and what God does now and forever. When we think about who God is, what he does, and our participation in this, we should be happy. We are happy because of the hope we have of being involved in what God's doing now and forever. And he says that this happiness doesn't go away when you have trouble. You even have this happiness when you're having trouble, which everyone does. And when you're having to develop patience and when you're having to persevere and if you'll just hang in there, he basically says you're going to keep coming back to hope. And as long as you're hopeful, you'll be happy in spite of what's going on around you. It was the uh, venerable uh, scholar W.E. Vine who defined the Greek word translated hope in the New Testament as the happy anticipation of good. Hope is the happy anticipation anticipation of good. In other words, when I anticipate something good in my future, I feel hope, which means I'm happily anticipating the good. All right? We are happy because of the hope we have. One of the most important things that a good leader can do is cultivate high levels of hope because every leader goes through difficult times and the world is a pretty inhospitable place. So we can't let our internal feast be determined by the external and present and temporal circumstances around us. We have to figure out if we're going to live well and lead well and if we're going to live a feast and throw a feast, we have to figure out how to always be in this state of being called happy. And to me, the key to that is to practice a disciplined hope where regardless what's happening, I am focused on the good things that I believe God has planned and is going to bring to pass in my life. And I focus on those especially when I'm discouraged because even in my discouragement, when I hope, it raises my happiness levels. I like this. I've said this to you before. I'm quoting this from the hospitable leader, But an overwhelming uh, uh, amount of scientific research details that our very physiology reacts positively to hope. When we hope, for instance, the neurotransmitter dopamine is released, which helps us increase focus on what we hope for and moves us to take action toward our dreams. As we hope, serotonin and endorphins pump through our system and we feel pleasure and sometimes even euphoria. Thinking hopeful thoughts literally changes the structure of our brain and shapes our very DNA in a propitious direction. Hope is a dopamine-producing, serotonin-releasing, endorphin-level-raising, brain-restructuring, DNA-shaping, happiness-elevating miracle drug. And I'm saying to you that you can live in a state of being that feels like a feast if you will practice hope as a discipline, now, one of the things that I personally struggle with. The pro- I, I hope that this, this will surprise you. I struggle with discouragement sometimes. When something I am trying to make happen isn't happening the way I want it to, and you know, there's a gap between the money we have and the money we need. When, um, when. I disappoint myself, or someone disappoints me in some way. I, I've had to learn in order to be a good leader. I don't think any of you have ever seen me walk up here and express discouragement. I don't think so in 27 years. But but that's because I've had to learn how to get myself undiscouraged sometimes. Because who wants to follow a leader who's not happy? Your teenager doesn't want to follow a dad or mom who's always down in the dumps. Your spouse doesn't enjoy living with that person. The people you're working with, they're not interested in that. You have to practice a discipline that keeps your hope levels high and keeps you in a happy state of being Because you are creating conditions, not just for yourself, but for the people you're leading. You are obligated to be happy. And that doesn't mean everything's always going to be going the way you want it to go. Because a lot of times it's not. But my experience is, if I can hang in there, we get there. Let me demonstrate, and I'm closing with this, a way that I've practiced this in my own personal life. One of the great leadership challenges and life challenges that I've faced is um, the project to develop this campus here at 747 Northfield Avenue. It, it's a more than 10-year-long project to get us from an 1,100-square-foot storefront church just off of Main Street. Many of you were there with, with, with contiguous with liquor, the liquor lobby on one side and Pauly's Pub on the other. You guys remember how many parking spaces we had there. The answer to how many parking spaces did you have there, Jose? If I remember right, it was zero. Not one parking space. Well, it was a big thing for our congregation. You walk in here now and you say, "Wow, look how lucky they are." Well, it's been a long, long, faith-filled, crazy journey. And, and a lot of I learned a lot about leadership for a lot of reasons during that more than 10-year long process. We actually still have one more piece of it to do to move these trailers out here and turn that area into a parking lot, so we're not quite done yet, but it's been more than 10 years, and when we when we acquired this property that we're on now, That's somebody in a tree at the Jewish Community Center taking a picture (laughs) of the property at that time. The road you drove up here didn't exist. The stoplight didn't exist. It was was an abandoned farm, once a very beautiful farm. but, But it was an abandoned farm with abandoned buildings. It was a little bit of a mess when we acquired it. Well, so during that season, that went on for 10 years, years of negotiations, zoning boards, planning boards, town council meetings, not in my backyard neighbors, architects, engineers, contractors, building inspectors, bureaucrats, raising money, borrowing money, still needing more money. There were days when the obstacles were so great that it looked like that this dream would never come true. There were four or five times when it looked like it was totally over during that process. And I would battle discouragement, but this is how I do it. During times of prayer and meditation, and meditation, by the way, is focused thought on God, His wor- His world, His word, and His word to us. During times of prayer and meditation, thinking about God and who he is and what he wanted to I believed he wanted to do in my life and in our congregation. Sometimes lying in bed in a dark room in the middle of the night, I would make myself practice hope as a deliberate discipline. I would imagine sitting at a stoplight, waiting to turn up a road, neither of which yet existed except in my mind. I would imagine I would make myself hear the sound of my turn signal blinking and I'd see the light in my mind change from red to green. And I would imagine turning up the road and passing a pond and a waterfall and a beautiful building that didn't exist except in my mind and God's mind. I would imagine pulling into a parking space. I didn't have one at 106, but I was determined when we had plenty of parking, I was gonna have a parking space. By the way, don't park in my parking space. I would imagine, I would, I'm sorry. I would imagine pulling into a parking space, my parking space, and I would imagine, I'd be so discouraged, Tony, so discouraged, but I'd imagine, the sound of the car turning off. I'd imagine opening the door, the creak of the springs in the car when I got out. I'd imagine the sound of the door slamming shut. And I'd imagine the sound of my own shoes walking on the pavement. I would imagine walking through a doorway into a warm, welcoming building that existed only in my mind. And I believed in the mind of God. And I would imagine sitting or standing over here on this front row listening to the band play. And I'd imagine what it would be like, so help me God, I'd imagine what it would feel like to feel God's presence in this place. And Jesus would meet me in my meditation. And as I would discipline myself to think those thoughts discouragement would turn to joy. I shared in my master's happiness. Dopamine, endorphins, whatever all the science says, flooded my being. I felt pleasure. I was happy because of the hope I had to share in who God is and the good things I believe that God wanted to do in my life. I resolved to live a feast so that I could lead people in a way where they felt a feast. Now, I could go on, that's a taste of my story. More importantly, what do you need to do to cultivate high hope levels, to create fundamental happiness that help you take action and to lead well? in spite of the circumstances around you to create the conditions for God to show up, for success to happen, for your mission to move forward. I suggest three things in summation. I suggest today that you know that you're in relationship with God and accept his invitation to his kingdom because his kingdom is a feast. Secondly, I res- I suggest that you resolve to intentionally invest in enjoying the good and beautiful things of this world in the life of a context of purpose. And thirdly, I suggest that you learn to practice the discipline of hope regardless of present circumstances so that you can consistently experience happiness that the hope in God brings and so that you can convey hope and happiness to everybody in your sphere of influence. Now.